Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I am Dr. David DeRose, and I am very glad to be with you today. We've got an exciting show lined up. Specifically, we are actually taking your questions. And you might say, well, how do you do that on a pre-recorded show? Something really interesting has been happening over the last several months. If you're a regular listener of this broadcast, you know that we launched an initiative not all that long ago called Timeless Healing Insights. So we have a website, timelesshealinginsights.org. Many of you have been there. And you've actually been going through our free 30-day program that is especially designed to target high blood pressure and diabetes. So natural strategies that you can use. Many of these strategies have been used by indigenous peoples for decades, centuries. And uh, it's, it's just exciting to see people engaging with the program, going through the program, getting great results. But we're also getting lots of questions. And that's why I say I know many of you are engaging with it because we've featured that program, the Timeless Healing Insights uh, program and website on the show. So I'm confident that many of you are some of those people writing in the many questions we've been getting through that uh, website platform. What we did just a few days ago is we actually did a live uh, in-person question and answer session. So we actually had people come out to a live venue, but we were also answering questions that had come through the internet or that were able to be submitted uh, via Uh, chat on Facebook and YouTube and uh, even through a Zoom interaction. So we will try to keep you posted if we're doing another one of those live events. If you're on the Timeless Healing Insights mailing list, we will get information out to you about events that come up. But what we're doing today is we're actually going to be featuring content from that live question and answer session. So if you've written in questions through that uh, web portal, they may well be at Asked the question may be asked on today's show, and then you'll hear my answer as it was given in that live venue. So I'm not going to take any more time with the background. Just uh, know you're hearing some things that uh, recently came up as a result of things you were wondering about based on things that have come out under the umbrella of American Indian and Alaska Native Living, as well as Timeless Healing Insights. So here we'll go right to those uh, live question and answer session and uh, see if uh, you're like others who have said, I really learned some things from those uh, questions and answers. So, ladies, what do we have in the way of questions uh, as we begin this evening? Sure, we're going to start with our uh, live audience. We've got one right here. So I'm going to have Linda. Okay. What can I do for neuropathy? Okay, the question is, what can I do for neuropathy? So, very literally, neuropathy is a disease of the nerves. And typically, the most common neuropathy we see is a, what we call, I'll give you the technical term for it, it's a distal symmetric polyneuropathy. And whether you're watching us live or whether you're tuning in, you're going to say, well, what does that tell me? We sometimes call it a stocking glove neuropathy. And that means the neuropathy starts just like you're putting your socks on. 
So how do you put your socks on? Well, you start with the tips of your toes and you put the sock on and you work it up your foot and then up your ankle. So this is the most common neuropathy that we see and it's the most common that I see in internal medicine because it is associated commonly but not exclusively with type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes as well but we see mostly type 2 diabetes in America. So whether your neuropathy is caused from diabetes, whether it's a toxic neuropathy, whether it's a nutritional deficiency neuropathy, neuropathy, like I said, it's a disease of the nerves. And as a result, what we're sometimes dealing with is something that can be reversible or modifiable. And let's talk a little bit about that. When it comes to the most common type of neuropathy, the diabetic neuropathy, we have had some pretty exciting results over the years. I've had the privilege of working in lifestyle centers where we've done a combination of comprehensive lifestyle and contrast hydrotherapy. So contrast hydrotherapy, if we're using it for neuropathy, what we'll do is we'll have a person soak their legs in warm water, uh, never above 104 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the equivalent of 40 degrees Celsius. So when we're working in a health center, we may have a big whirlpool. We may have them sitting in a chair with their whole leg up to the thigh, emerged in this uh, bath, and they 104 degrees for three minutes. Then we go from that hot bath, warm or hot, depending on how you want to describe 104 degrees, and then you put your legs into cold water for 30 seconds. We do multiple cycles of that, typically four to five cycles, and we do the treatment at least once a day. So that is an effective treatment combined with a comprehensive lifestyle. That comprehensive lifestyle is the very one typical that we promoted in the 30-day program that's available at Timeless Healing Insights. So combining that healthy lifestyle, plant-based diet, physical exercise, stress management with contrast hydrotherapy can be powerful. Now, having said that, people often have neuropathy from other causes. I've seen people with neuropathy because of B12 deficiency. So vitamin B12 is a vitamin that we see a lot of people who are deficient in it. And people say, well, that's why, Dr. DeRose, I eat a lot of meat, because I've heard that has B12 in it. Well, let me just tell you, the main cause of vitamin B12 deficiency in America is not lack in the diet. It's not because people are not eating enough meat. It's because many of us, as we get older, don't absorb B12 as well. So the real strategy is not uh, eating animal products, which are pro-inflammatory and harmful for other reasons. It's basically getting adequate B12 intake in high dosage oral supplements, or sometimes we need to use injection therapy. So if you have a question about that, have your vitamin B12 level checked. There are also certain toxins that can cause neuropathies, chemotherapies, so definitely work with your doctor to get a firm diagnosis. We always say the first step in treatment is diagnosis. What other questions do we have this evening? Sure, we have one from our uh, program participants. This is concerning um, diverticulitis and osis. She states that um, she works with an individual who's always had three regular bowel movements a day with no constipation. And um, he experienced some pain in his abdomen and then was diagnosed with diverticulosis and diverticulitis. And how can that occur when there hasn't been any constipation or other issues? Okay, let's talk about these conditions. So diverticulosis, diverticulitis. First of all, what's the difference? So osis is a condition of. 
Normal healthy bowel when we're born has no outpouchings. It's just a smooth, uh, well, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It has all kinds of folds and stuff in it, but it's a, a smooth-lined uh, tube, okay? That's your, your colon. Over time, some people develop little outpouchings. It's like a little finger-like projection, which is called a diverticuli. Diverticulosis is a condition of having diverticuli. So it's asymptomatic. You don't feel anything with diverticulosis, but there's these little outpouchings. If those outpouchings become inflamed and infected, inflammation is when we use that prefix or suffix, in this case, itis. Okay? So, itis, what does that mean? The diverticulum has become inflamed. And uh, this can be problematic, okay? So it, uh, it could rupture just like an appendix could rupture. It needs to be treated medically. Now, coming back to the question. The question is, okay, how does a person get diverticulosis, first of all, because you can't have diverticulitis unless you have the condition of the outpouchings, right? The common thinking is the only way you develop diverticulosis is from increased stress on the bowel wall, which is typically felt to be associated with increased pressure in the colon because of a low-fiber diet. So people who've done studies throughout the world, they say they go to populations that are on high-fiber diets, they don't see any diverticulosis. So the question is, well, how can someone seemingly be on a good diet, have very regular bowel movements, and how could they have diverticulosis? Well, the first part of the answer to the question is just what's happening today doesn't mean what was happening yesterday or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So if you've made dramatic changes in your lifestyle and you've improved your lifestyle, that's great, but there are some things that we can't undo. So once you have diverticuli, they don't go away. I've never seen any evidence that they could go away. So basically period of time in your life, you may have developed these. Now you may have great bowel health. You may be on a high-fiber diet. You're not creating any more diverticuli, but you could still have the condition. One thing that's worth noting, years ago they used to tell patients, and some doctors still do this, they say, well, you shouldn't be eating seeds or nuts or anything like this for fear that they might provoke diverticulitis. Latest on that uh, question is there seems to be no evidence that you need to avoid some of these otherwise excellent foods. So we currently do not recommend that you have to modify your diet from some of these healthy plant foods just because they have seeds in them. Okay, other questions? Go ahead. This is from the audience live. I have one leg that is beginning to get more bowed. I also have pain in my knee. Could these be related? Okay, that's an excellent question. The uh, anatomical system that we have is truly amazing, okay? The, the Bible says we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that is clearly true. Probably the most common thing we see, at least in primary care with orthopedics, is we see that once someone has a problem with one part of their bone and joint system, it's easy for that to kind of cascade and affect other parts as well. For example, if you hurt your toe, you might start walking differently, okay, to avoid pain in the toe, and the next thing you know, your ankle's bothering you. And uh, you adjust your walk or something because of that, and then you're, or maybe you get crutches, then your shoulders are bothering you. So uh, it's very, uh, very interconnected, the, uh, we call the axial and the appendicular skeleton. So the axial skeleton, you know, your spine and 
uh, your central structures, and then your appendicular skeleton that involves your, your arms and legs. In this case, if the knee is going bad, and if the knee is wearing asymmetrically, okay, so think about it. The knee, you know, is a, is a joint. If, let's just say, the outer part of your knee is wearing away more rapidly than the inner part, or vice versa, then you can have changes in the leg alignment as well. So usually what we say when you're having issues where you're seeing some change in the curvature of the legs, definitely a reason to get some formal medical evaluation and see if there's something structural uh, that's going on that, that might be able to be helped. And, uh, you know, here's a practical thing. I've dealt with a lot of orthopedic surgeons over the years. One of my favorite orthopedic surgeons, and I, I know some people would say this is going overboard, but he said uh, he wouldn't do joint replacements until the patient was begging him to replace the joint. Now, a lot of other people would say, well, that's cruel and unusual punishment. You know, get it taken care of before it gets that bad. But his whole point was you can't always tell how compromised someone is just by getting an x-ray. You know, someone may say, well, you've got bone on bone there, and someone may have terrible pain, and someone else may be functioning quite well, and the x-rays look similar. So bottom line is um, get a firm diagnosis, and then one of the simple principles for any joint problems is always do whatever you can to strengthen the supporting muscles. So when it comes to the knee, you want to have strong uh, hamstrings and quadriceps muscles. Uh, the stronger those muscles are in the legs, the more stable that knee is going to become. We are going to have to step away just briefly. We are going to be coming back with more content from that presentation. If you're interested in taking advantage of all that was communicated during that live question and answer session. We can't feature it all on today's edition of the broadcast, but you can check it out at timelesshealinginsights.org. That's timeless, like never-ending, timeless, healing, H-E-A-L-I-N-G, and then the word insights, I-N-S-I-G-H-T-S, Dot org. So we will see you there, but more importantly, we encourage you to stay by because we're going to be telling you more uh, fascinating insights from things that grew out of your questions or those like you who've been tuning into our resources. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are talking today about things that are on your minds That is, if you've been one of the people that have been engaging with us through our new platform, TimelessHealingInsights.org. We have been answering questions. We did it live just a few days ago. We're sharing answers to those questions as well, of course, as the questions on today's edition of the broadcast. Here we are going back to another question that came from our listeners and viewers. Okay, the next one. Is it true canola oil should be absolutely avoided? And if so, what are the alternatives? Okay. So, uh, yeah, there's been um, a lot of uh, discussion about canola oil over the years. And, of course, canola oil comes from uh, rapeseed. It's a modified rapeseed. So rapeseed does have toxic uh, compounds in the oil. And so the canola oil is a modified rapeseed oil. So a lot of the horror stories that have been circulating on the Internet for years are simply not true, okay? That does not mean you should use a lot of canola oil, but uh, these things like if you eat canola oil, you're going to drop dead, those are, uh, are generally greatly exaggerated. Having said that, my biggest fear when it comes to fats and oils is not with canola oil. It's with um, animal-saturated fats. So if someone has switched to... Um, to lard because they were afraid of canola oil, this would be a bad decision, okay? So a lot of the medical literature I reviewed years ago looking at this and uh, it was fascinating because what we find is that the typical person, you know, eating a lot of animal fats, canola oil can actually be healthier than what they are eating. Having said all that, um, there are other oils that some people feel are better choices and you may hear people talking about extra virgin olive oil. Uh, you may hear people talking about plant sources of omega-3 fats, like a flaxseed oil, especially used therapeutically. But really the bottom line is I see very few people 
that need more oil. Sometimes we might prescribe like a flaxseed oil as an anti-inflammatory, but I'm generally not telling people to try to eat more oil. Most people are eating too much already. Okay? Another question from the audience is, I have a burning sensation in my chest. Could it be related to my eating chocolate? Okay, well, there's a lot of causes of chest discomfort. Uh, you can have a burning sensation in the chest with uh, what we call reflux esophagitis uh, or a heartburn. We commonly call it heartburn. And that's uh, generally caused by acid coming back up from the stomach into the swallowing tube or the esophagus. Now, having said that, you can also have chest pain that's related to the heart, okay? And um, it's often not referred to as a burning quality, but it can be. You know, you want to be careful. One of the biggest mistakes you can make is trying to diagnose yourself. So here's some of the things that get me worried about chest pain. Regardless of how someone describes it, if that chest pain gets worse with activity, that is suspicious for chest pain related to the heart, okay? Um, if it is unrelated to activity and it's related to meals or they tell me, you know, the worst time I have this pain is if I eat and then I lie down, that is kind of one of the hallmarks for reflux esophagitis uh, or heartburn, you know, typical heartburn. And one of the strategies that we use for that, of course, it's not a good idea to eat and then lie down. That You might have picked up on that. But even if you've eaten many hours before lying down, we find for many people putting six-inch blocks under the head of the bed can actually be very helpful in decreasing reflux symptoms. So again, like we talked about earlier, the first step in optimal treatment is diagnosis. So if you've been having chest pain, whether it's burning, chest heaviness, funny feelings in the chest, definitely talk with a healthcare provider. Get a good diagnosis. If it is heartburn, there are some natural things that you can do. Uh, we can also talk about natural remedies for that if, if people want to go into more detail on it. Okay, the next question is that I'm forgetting more often than not, and it seems to be getting worse. Is there a way to reverse this, and are there any natural remedies that you would suggest? Okay, so this question has to do with cognitive decline, cognitive decline. So, I mean, it's a big concern today in, uh, in America and in the world. You know, what do you do when you feel like your mental faculties are slipping? You know, we talked about one thing that, um, that I probably should reemphasize. We've talked a little bit about vitamin B12 already today. Um, some years ago, I was talking with a friend of mine, a physician who is a hospitalist, and she shared a story with me of how she had, for whatever reason, been checking B12 levels on patients in the hospital that she was caring for. And she said two of the patients that she evaluated had undetectable levels of B12. Both of them had profound, irreversible dementia. So vitamin B12 is, I think, getting more onto practitioners' radar screens but it's very important, so it's one of the things that's easy to evaluate for, and uh, if you're having some cognitive issues, it's one of the things I would say definitely have evaluated, have the B12 status evaluated. I want to also mention, though, that lifestyle in general can be very helpful because cerebrovascular disease, problems with the blood supply to the brain, very susceptible to lifestyle, high blood pressure, another major risk factor for dementia, and then the combination of diabetes with obesity 
dramatically increases rates of dementia. So addressing any of these modifiable things, the high blood pressures, the diabetes, and that's why the 30-day program we have, if you haven't already gone through that program, uh, we have it available free of charge at timelesshealinginsights.org. Uh, go through that 30-day program. When you sign up, uh, you can opt in. We'll send you daily reminders for the uh, tasks, the challenges that we give you each day. Simple six-minute videos, and it's a, a program that can help with both the diabetes and high blood pressure, both of which have connections with dementia. Okay, so our next question is, I am a 60-year-old African-American woman that has been recently diagnosed with a number of chronic diseases, including diabetes and high blood pressure. The doctor that I am seeing would like for me to begin taking blood pressure medication. She has prescribed Lincipril and has been monitoring my blood pressure twice daily. I have informed her that I would rather treat myself naturally. Should I continue medication or is it best just to do it with your program? Okay, so she's 60 years old, is that correct? Okay, okay, and she's on a medication called Lisinopril. So let's talk a little bit about this. Um, so some years ago, I had the privilege of working with Dr. Greg Steinke and nurse practitioner Trudy Lee, and we wrote the book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. So that book formed the foundation for a lot of the work we did in that 30-day free program that we have online. We've seen many people, many testimonials. Uh, we've done small studies in community groups that have used that book and some related uh, materials that we have available. And on average, we find people in 30 to 60 days in some of these community groups dropping their systolic blood pressure some 17 points. That's a series of some three small community groups that use the program that we had data on. So you say, okay, well, what all does that mean? Someone says their blood pressure is, you know, 150 over 95. Could they just go on lifestyle? Well, that's a different question than someone whose blood pressure is running 220 over 120, okay? So now, we didn't get a blood pressure from this uh, questioner, did we, Beth? Was there any blood pressure readings given in that question? Okay, so I'm getting uh, shakings of head no from our questioning table. So here's the deal. Um, I'll tell you a true story. Some uh, many years ago, it was not a patient of mine, but someone I knew, said, you know, I know about all these natural remedies for blood pressure control, and when I do them, my blood pressure's great, but I can't do them that often, and I'm very busy, my blood pressure's running high, I don't want to take medicine. Well, here's what I recommend. If your blood pressures are running high, high blood pressure is dangerous. It's dangerous for your brain. It's dangerous for your heart. Dangerous for your kidneys. Dangerous for your eyes. You're better off taking a medication to keep your blood pressure at a minimum below 140 over 90, okay? Um, you know, if your blood pressure is running in the 160s, 170s, by all means, you need to be, you need to be on medication um, if you can't get on lifestyle and it quickly come down. So what I'll usually do with a patient, if they come into my office, we'll put them on a medication, but we'll also instruct them on the lifestyle. So in this case, we'd say go through the 30-day program or read the book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. Put the principles into practice. You're monitoring your blood pressure frequently. We recommend two to three times a day. And as you see that blood pressure going down, then work with your doctor to taper off the medicine because uh, that particular person I was telling you who felt they could control their blood pressure perfectly but weren't doing it much, they ended up having a massive stroke, okay? And uh, it was not something that they bounced back from. 
So you don't want to have that scenario. You don't want to end up with kidney failure and then say, well, I, now I'm going to get real serious about this. You want to treat the blood pressure with medication if necessary until you can get on an optimal lifestyle and get those numbers down. Well, we have to step away again just for a couple of minutes, but we will be coming back with more of these engaging questions and hopefully engaging answers since I'm the one giving them. But we've got a lot of great content. People really appreciated the program that we had in the live venue, and hopefully you're learning some things that can make a difference in your own life. If you've got questions, if you would like to engage with us as far as a future broadcast, we are planning to do uh, some more live events as well as pre-recorded events, you can uh, jump into the dialogue by simply going to TimelessHealingInsights.org. That's TimelessHealingInsights, plural, dot O-R-G. We'll be back with more right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for the second half of today's edition of the broadcast. Dr. David DeRose engaging with you as far as cutting-edge health questions and other cutting-edge because they have just come into us over the last few days and weeks as we've been uh, engaging more with our audience, both online and through the radio show, TimelessHealingInsights.org. It's a place where a lot of folks have been jumping on and going through a free 30-day lifestyle program. It takes about six minutes a day to view the video content. We encourage you to make specific changes in your life. You carry it out for a month. We're hearing great things about people losing weight, their blood sugars coming down, their blood pressure coming under better control. But as they've been going on that journey, many of them have had questions. Some of those questions have been the focus of today's show. We answered them, at least I answered them, in a live venue just a few days ago. And we have now uh, selected from those questions 
for this special radio show. If you want to hear the entire dialogue, there's more questions and answers than we were able to fit into today's program. You are able to access those simply by going to timelesshealinginsights.org. Well, we're going back to more of your questions as I answered them live just a few days ago. Dr. Rose, the next question is, do you recommend cinnamon pills for blood pressure and how much on a daily basis? Okay. So this is a really interesting question. So we've heard a lot of people um, using cinnamon more so for diabetes than for blood pressure. If you look at the medical research literature on plant products, it seems that the creator has put all kinds of blood pressure-lowering compounds, blood sugar-lowering compounds in plant products. So the question is, well, which ones do you use? When we wrote our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, we focused on the natural products that seemed to have the best weight of evidence, and the best track record being used by multiple practitioners and uh, good quality research studies. Uh, cinnamon was not one of them, okay? That doesn't mean that someone couldn't use it, couldn't be having good effects. Uh, we found compelling data suggesting that things like magnesium, omega-3 fats, uh, coenzyme Q10, hibiscus tea, L-arginine. So there's a number that we cover. It's all in Chapter 12 in the book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control. But yes, there's multiple natural products that could help with high blood pressure and with diabetes, but we've tried to focus on the ones that seem to be safe and have the best track record. That was not one of them. Okay, so the next question, Dr. DeRose, is how can I safely discontinue metformin prescribed? And are there any other natural sources that they can use instead? Okay, so let's talk about metformin. Uh, years ago, it came out under the brand name of glucophage. It is a very commonly used medication for diabetes. But let's step back a little bit before a person even gets diabetes. There's a condition that we now call pre-diabetes. When researchers in the diabetes prevention program looked at glucophage or metformin, they found that metformin could prevent the progression, or let's put it this way, could decrease the likelihood of progressing from pre-diabetes to full-blown diabetes. Because here's what we know. If you don't do anything and you have pre-diabetes today, the, uh, the statistics suggest that there's an over 10% chance per year that you will develop full-blown diabetes. Over the course of a decade, you have a greater than 50% likelihood that you will develop full-blown diabetes if you have prediabetes. If you add metformin to the equation, that decreases your risk. Now, here's where we're going with all this, because the researchers found there was something more powerful than metformin. More powerful than metformin was exercise and modest weight loss in people that were overweight. So here's where I'm kind of going with the question. The way metformin works it actually helps to attack or address something called insulin resistance. Insulin resistance is the root cause of type 2 diabetes. So yes, there's a pharmacologic treatment for it. Metformin is one of the drugs that's been used. There's been other drugs that have been used to lower insulin resistance. It is the, the, probably the most popular one being used worldwide. So you can lower insulin resistance, though, with lifestyle. So we say get on that better exercise program. 
lose some weight. And there are other lifestyle factors that lower insulin resistance. So avoiding the saturated fats, get away from the animal fats, get more on a plant-based diet, that will help lower insulin resistance. What else helps to lower insulin resistance? Well, just quite interesting. You know, we've talked about diet and exercise, but if you're really concerned about how insulin functions, you want to get adequate rest as well, adequate sleep. And we've touched on that this evening already. So yes, many people can get off of metformin by adopting healthy lifestyle habits. So next step is, I'm taking VentureCore for blood pressure. Do you recommend this or should I stop taking it? Okay, so let's talk about medications and supplements both. If you are prescribed a medication, I never recommend that you just stop taking a medication, okay? So, and there's several reasons why. Let me just give you some examples in the field of blood pressure. I'll tell you a story, in fact. Some years ago, I um, knew a, a physician whose uh, wife ended up with an emergency hospitalization. She was on a medication called clonidine. It's a blood pressure medicine. She was admitted to the hospital, and somehow in the process of the emergency, they forgot or didn't get the information that she was on clonidine. This is a medication, if you stop it abruptly, it can cause what we call rebound hypertension. And uh, in this case, you could have blood pressures higher than you've ever seen them even before you were on medication. This person ended up with some serious problems because of that. So, I tell you that story because it doesn't just have to be in the course of a hospitalization. You could say, well, I'm tired of all these medicines. I'm just going to flush them down the toilet. Some of these drugs are very dangerous to stop abruptly. It's also true of beta blockers. If the drug name ends in lol, like uh, atenolol or metoprolol or propanolol, those are generic names for beta blockers. Those drugs, your heart gets uh, dependent on them. Carvedilol is another one. And if you stop those medications abruptly, uh, you can have serious problems. People have even had heart attacks by stopping those drugs abruptly. So the first message is, with prescription drugs, definitely don't stop them abruptly. When you say, then what about supplements? What if someone's been taking a supplement and they feel like the supplement is helping them, should they stop that abruptly? I do recommend, even though not every clinician will work with a patient with their supplements, I say find that one who will. Because some of these supplements do have significant effects, and if you just abruptly stop, you again may have some significant changes, deleterious changes, especially if you're getting a benefit from it. And remember, these conditions, especially high blood pressure, if those pressures go significantly to significantly elevated levels, you can have a precipitous event like a stroke or rupture of a blood vessel or other things. All right. What milligram do you recommend for... CoQ10 and is a three times more absorption rate good? Okay, so let's talk about coenzyme Q10. I'd already mentioned it and fortunately I brought my books with me today in my back pocket. It's one of the wonders of modern technology. So here on my smartphone I have my Kindle app, our book 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure as well as the Methuselah Factor book are both uh, available on Kindle. And so since uh, you gave me a heads up about this one, I am actually turned to the page in Chapter 12 where we talk about coenzyme Q10. And uh, so basically, we summarize research data on this supplement. And uh, typical dosages, 
that you'll read about are anywhere from 60 to 100 milligrams of CoQ10 taken twice a day. Now, when you talk about absorption, sometimes uh, you'll see something called ubiquinol. We talk about that as a uh, better absorbed form, if you will, of coenzyme Q10. And you can get by with, uh, with less of that. So, for example, you may just take 60 to 100 milligrams of ubiquinol a day. That's all, total. Whereas with the CoQ10, you'd have to double that. Some people even quadruple it. They may be taking up to 200 milligrams of CoQ10 twice a day. So there is some range for, um, uh, for dosage. Here's what I tell people in general, whether it's with a, a pharmaceutical medication or a supplement, the general rule of thumb is less is better than more, okay? So if, you're, if we're looking at blood pressure control or blood sugar control, you can actually measure your blood sugar, your blood pressure, adequately controlled with a lower dosage. It doesn't mean more is better. Um, more is sometimes not as desirable. Okay. Next one, Dr. DeRose, is I have type 2 diabetes and have had significant issues with losing my vision. What type of vision care should I be getting in conjunction with my diabetes medication and diet program? Okay, so basically diabetes has multiple serious long-term effects. We usually talk about this under the heading of what we call microvascular disease, disease of the small blood vessels. Uh, we've already talked a little bit tonight about neuropathy. Diabetic neuropathy is a result of microvascular disease caused from the high blood sugars. So are kidney problems. So people can have full-blown kidney failure, obviously, from diabetes, but they can also get it from uncontrolled high blood pressure alone. So having mentioned those two areas, kidneys and nerves, we now come to another common site of microvascular change, and that is the eye. So the typical recommendation for diabetes is that a person with no known eye disease from their diabetes has annual eye screening. So every year, you're going to see an ophthalmologist. A lot of places like the clinic where I do my telemedicine out of, we actually have an ophthalmologist who uses a special camera and takes pictures of the retina so they can actually be compared directly from year to year, not just by a physician's notes. And uh, that is a very effective way of following things over time. Problem with this is once you develop retinopathy, this person's already having visual changes, so it begs the question, well, why? If it's from retinopathy, that means damage to the retina, and that typically occurs from uh, like bleeding into the back of the eye from the diabetes. There's an association with that. There's also an association with leakage of fluid into the retina area. So then you're going to be wanting to follow up with the eye specialist at a frequency recommended, often even by a retinal specialist. Now, having told you all that, the most common cause of vision problems in diabetes is just fluctuating blood sugars. So the retina actually can be fine. But if your blood sugar is fluctuating widely, there's a what we call disequilibrium. They're, they're not, the, the sugar concentration in the eye structures is not in harmony with the sugar concentrations in the blood, and this can cause problems with vision. So the first step when it comes to uh, diabetes in the eye is try to have better diabetes control, and our 30-day free program is great for a good uh, lifestyle approach to that, but definitely continue to work with your sources of care. Make sure you're having at least annual screening of your eyes. If the eye doctor says they look good, then you need to be working on smoothing out the control of the blood sugar. 
We do have to step away just once more in today's edition of the broadcast, but we will be back with some final questions and answers from a live event that was held just literally a few days ago. We are um, broadcasting in the month of March 2022, and that is the very month when the live event took place. So uh, we're getting this out to you pretty quickly so that you can benefit from some of the questions you or others like you have been asking. We've got a final segment coming up. I encourage you to stay by. If you want to hear more of this content, timelesshealinginsights.org is the place to go. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be back with more right after these important messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose for our final segment of today's show, Your Questions and My Answers. That's what we've been featuring in today's program, if you're just jumping on, this is content that we took from a longer program that was uh, actually just uh, filmed a few days ago, taking questions and answers that have come through the timelesshealinginsights.org website. 
I know some of you connect with us uh, through some of the networks that we air our program on. But I think uh, all of these questions came in either live from the audience who was present or through the TimelessHealingInsights.org website. In any event, if you're just jumping on, you can catch the entire program at that website. But we've got more for you right now, things that can make a difference as far as your health and the health of those you love. Here we go with another question. All right. Dr. DeRose, is it possible to gain weight with type 2 diabetes? I am diagnosed three years ago, but I'm underweight. I'm 5'10 at 122 pounds. My last AC1 test was six a year ago. How often should AC1 be tested? Should people with diabetes be tested more frequently by their treating physician? I'm a bit concerned about being underweight. Any suggestions for weight gain when diabetic? Okay, so let's talk about this in some detail. So hemoglobin A1C is a measure that looks at average blood sugars. So as a rule of thumb, your red blood cells live about three months. And uh, those red blood cells, as they're living in your bloodstream for three months, they get into kind of an equilibrium with the blood sugar. And uh, if you actually measure the amount of sugar, if you will, that's connected with the red blood cells, that will give you uh, an estimate of average blood sugar readings. So a hemoglobin A1C of 6.0, if someone did not have a diagnosis of diabetes and they were not on medication for diabetes, that would not even meet the criteria for diabetes. So 6.5 is the cutoff. So 6.0, we'd say that's a pre-diabetic range of blood sugar. So once you're on treatment, though, the person obviously has diabetes. So first of all, we talked a bit about the hemoglobin A1C. That's a measure of average blood sugar control. Now we want to talk about this more perplexing situation. I say perplexing. It is very unusual. I would say very, very unusual to have someone who truly has type 2 diabetes and is extremely underweight. And this person is. So they're five foot ten, I heard, and around 122 pounds. Yes. Did they say whether it's a man or a woman? Okay, it's a woman. So, uh, and the reason I ask is we have a rule of thumb for height and weight, depending on gender. So for a woman, it's 100 pounds for the first five feet, and then it's five pounds per inch thereafter, give or take 10%. Okay. So in this case, a woman who's five ten would be 150 pounds. That would be kind of a rule of thumb of what she should be weighing. And she weighs over 25 pounds less than that. So here's why this is uh, not typically what we see. Typically, true type 2 diabetes is the result of insulin resistance. One of the things that drives insulin resistance, we've already talked about it tonight, is overweight. This person is underweight. When I see a person diagnosed with type 2 diabetes who is underweight, I get suspicious that they have something called LADA. There's other terms for it, but it's a latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood. This is a slow type 1 diabetes. So um, in a person like that, if they've not already been tested for evidence for autoimmunity, uh, the body attacking their own pancreas, I would be evaluated for that, okay? And uh, there are certain things that may be able to modulate that or slow that process down. Let's talk a little bit about it. Let's say this person does end up having type 1 diabetes. 
If they actually have type 1 diabetes, it's due to autoimmune, typically autoimmune destruction of the islet cells, the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas. And uh, what we find the best strategy for dealing with this is, believe it or not, insulin therapy. So the person cannot make enough insulin. Actually, insulin therapy is important. Giving them adequate insulin therapy with adequate calories can actually help them gain weight. If you're not making enough insulin, you actually will waste away, okay? So typical type 1 diabetic, um, before the days of insulin therapy, would present thin. They're unable to get calories into their tissues. You need insulin to move sugar into your tissues, and they can have weight loss. So that would be my main concern in this scenario. Okay. The next question, Dr. Rose, is do you have, do you suggest any extra precautions for people who have high blood pressure, diabetes, who may get or who have had COVID? What works during the infection and any suggested treatments after? Okay. One of the nice things that we have, um, I'm trying to think which website it's on. It's on my Compass Health website. So if you go to compasshealth.net, compasshealth.net, we have a free, I think it's like a 15-page handout on natural things you can do to improve your immune system. So that is a great resource. But definitely, when you have high blood pressure, diabetes, if you're concerned about COVID or other infectious illnesses, you want to get those diseases under as best control as possible. Higher blood sugar levels interfere with function of white blood cells. That's one key thing. And then um, in the case of COVID, Many of the complications of COVID were related to uh, vascular disease. So um, optimizing your cardiovascular risk factors like blood pressure is also important. All right, Dr. DeRose, are there any supplements or herbal teas that you could recommend for treatment of anxiety? Okay. So uh, anxiety is a pervasive problem in uh, the United States, the Western world, the world as a whole. One of my uh, favorite uh, practical programs for dealing with anxiety, and we've used this in community programs, is the one that uh, Dr. Neil Nedley has developed. So uh, you may want to go to, uh, I think it's simply drnedley.com. He has a lot of resources there, natural therapies for anxiety. Some of the things that we've used over the years um, so we tend to work first with a comprehensive lifestyle. This is true with any of the conditions. It's true with anxiety as well. A lot of the things we've been talking about tonight have benefits in dealing with anxiety. So keeping your stress hormone levels lower, with exercise, with adequate rest, optimal diet, very important. And then avoiding things like caffeine, which is a stimulant that raises stress hormone levels. So that's all very important. Sometimes what we'll do one of the common problems we see with anxiety is trouble sleeping. Let me just mention to you four herbs that we've used, at least in the short term, for helping with sleep. And I always tell my patients when I'm going through this list, I say they're in order of increasing strength but decreasing palatability, okay? So the first one that we'll usually start out with is something you've probably seen before in many um, natural herbal sleep aids is chamomile, okay? Now, if you have a lot of allergies, hay fever, other things, you may actually be allergic to chamomile, so just be careful of that. But chamomile is one of the first ones. It's generally well-tolerated. People like the flavor. 
Second one that we move up to is catnip, okay? Then a stronger herb and also a, a more bitter-tasting herb is hops, okay? Now, some people say, well, does that mean I should be drinking more beer? No, we really don't recommend you getting your hops from beer. And we've got a lot on our different programs. We talk about problems with alcohol. Alcohol is a leading source of calories. It raises blood pressure. It's not in your favor if you have anxiety issues. So anyway, it interferes with normal sleep patterns. So, but hops, the herb, the unfermented hops, actually has natural sleep-producing properties. And then the herb that is the strongest of the four that I recommend, and I don't recommend people use it long-term, but is valerian, another natural sedative. Well, that is all we have time for on today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Not only am I your host for this radio broadcast, but, of course, I'm the one who's been answering the questions uh, that have been raised on this edition of the program. You are welcome to jump on and hear the whole program at TimelessHealingInsights.org. If you've not been there, we've got a great 30-day program, free program. You can use it uh, in your tribal uh, community center. You can use it in your tribal health clinic. You can use it in your place of work, whether you're Native or not. Uh, You can use it at home. You can use it as an individual. It's a 30-day program. takes about six minutes a day to watch some videos that I've prepared, uh, short, focused, practical videos that give you some of the very keys that you'll need to get your blood sugar and your blood pressure under better control. It's all there at TimelessHealingInsights.org. You can also ask your questions through that website. We're going to be doing future programs that feature, well, the very things that you're wondering about. Well, I'm Dr. David DeRose. Hopefully today's show has given you some more tools to help you be successful as far as living healthier and living better. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. This is Life Talk Radio.